Welcome to the April edition of the Nutritionist Webinar 2016. I am Marianne Fesenden from Agricultural Modeling and Training Systems, and I serve as your English language host. The purpose of these webinars is to provide access to technical seminars on a range of topics delivered by internationally recognized speakers. The series is a unique three-language presentation held in English, Portuguese, and Spanish. Noted ruminant nutritionists will present in English, hosted by AMTS in the United States, while Marcelo Hens-Ramos from 3R Labs simultaneously translates into Portuguese for Brazil, and Paula Torilo translates into Spanish for Argentina. Today, the Brazilian webinar is hosted by Marcos Neves. Marcelo is translating for a group of nutritionists. There will be a post-presentation question and answer period during which listeners can submit questions through me, Marcos, and Paula. A complete recording of archived webinars as well as the question and answer session for each will be available on the 3R Lab and AMTS website. We're very pleased and honored to have James Drakeley here today as our April presenter. Dr. Jim Drakeley is a professor of animal sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Drakeley grew up on a small dairy farm in Minnesota and received his Ph.D. in nutritional physiology from Iowa State University. Since joining the faculty of the University of Illinois in 1989, his research program has focused on nutrition and metabolism of transition cows, fat utilization and metabolism, and aspects of calf nutrition and management. Dr. Drakeley has published extensively, including more than 168 articles in referee journals to date. He has trained 40 graduate students. He has received a number of local and national awards for his research and is consistently on the list of excellent teachers as voted by the students at the University of Illinois. Dr. Drakeley was named a fellow of the American Dairy Science Association, ADSA, in 2015. Dr. Drakeley has been active in ADSA, having served as a member of the Board of Directors and Chair of the Production Division, among other roles. Dr. Drakeley also has worked extensively with dairy and feed industry groups around the world. Currently, he is a member of the National Research Council Committee to produce the eighth edition of the NRC publication, Nutrient Requirements of Dairy Cattle. So, Dr. Drakeley, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, <clears throat> Marianne, thank you. I hope everyone can hear me okay. Um, and thank you for the, I'm really happy to be invited to present this webinar today. And I, we're going to talk about baby calf nutrition. So today I'm going to focus a little bit on some aspects important to calf, of calf nutrition that are important for health, growth, and future productivity in, in uh, dairy animals. You're going to be having a, a couple of other seminars, webinars in this series over the next several months that will deal more with um, with the growing heifer and some aspects of, of feeding management and housing. It'll be a little bit later in the year. So today I'm going to cover some of the, the basics from the nutritional uh, standpoint. We'll start out with just a little bit of, of context here. Heifer raising is a huge investment, a huge part of the cost of a dairy enterprise, and I'd like to encourage those of us that work with producers to think of it as an investment and help them think of it as an investment rather than just a cost. 
So if we look at Iowa State University extension estimates from a couple of years ago, the cost to raise a heifer was a total of about $2,260 to freshening at 24 months of age. So that's a, a, a substantial investment, of course, increased because of the uh, increase in feed prices over the last several years. Under today's price situation, it might not be quite that high, but it's still a, a large investment for dairy farms. So a breakdown of costs from the same Iowa State group is shown in this slide. Uh, over half of the cost of raising that heifer to calving relates to feed cost, and you can see the other categories there as well. If we pull out costs that would be most um, specifically associated with the, the calf rearing period through weaning, you can see about $160 per, per calf for milk replacer and calf feed, and about $70 per head for vet and medicine fees. So we've got about 10% of the total cost represented during that early calf period. So the, if we look at it on a per day cost, it certainly is the most expensive time of the growing period. By the Iowa State estimates, the cost was five to six dollars per day, and that's over double the cost for a post wean heifer. Uh, so certainly producers see that uh, large cost as a, a challenge to their profitability. If we can improve the growth rate and the time, uh, reduce the time that it takes to grow that animal into a dairy replacement, of course, we reduce the cost of that replacement heifer. For example, using the same assumptions here, if we decrease the age to first calving by one month, we'd save uh, almost $100 in, the, the, um, in the, the rearing cost of the heifer. So certainly a large challenge here of, of investment costs, uh, but again, we can't think of it all as just costs. We have to think about it as the, uh, the cost of the investment, hopefully that will be returned uh, in future productivity. So we'll come back to that point here in a, a little bit. So it's because feed represents over half of the cost of, of rearing heifers and certainly a major part of the early pre-weaned and weaning period for calves. We're going to talk today a little bit about why why we feed, what we do, and, and when. Of course, we know that the calf goes through several stages in this early life period, from the colostrum as the first food, through milk replacer or, or milk as the, the liquid feed during the pre-ruminant stage, beginning to eat starter dry feeds to help the, the rumen develop and transition the animal into a functioning ruminant, and then at that time, increasing uses of various forages uh, when we do have the, the ruminant animal. So really an exciting time from the standpoint of the biology of the calf, but these uh, ch uh, changes and adaptations in the biology also pose some problems for producers and their advisors. Calves, just like any other animal, require several basic nutrients. So water is the, the most important and also most frequently neglected nutrient needed in large quantities. We have various nutrients then that provide energy to the animal. We need protein, sources of amino acids, um, a variety of minerals from macro minerals to trace or micro minerals, and then also vitamins, which are more important during this pre-ruminant phase because the, the rumen of the animal is not producing its own B vitamins, for example. 
So really nothing remarkable there in terms of the types of nutrients that calves need relative to other animals. We have requirement systems that have been defined by various groups. We're currently working with the, uh, the last edition of the NRC Nutrient Requirements of Dairy Cattle publication. And as Marianne said, the, the new edition will be out uh, at some point, um, I believe in my lifetime, uh, still a little ways uh, away. But the, the NRC has broken those requirements down into maintenance and growth functions for calves. Maintenance will include all the basal functions just to keep the animal alive, heart, uh, heart beating, lungs breathing, and so on. Uh, it also includes any increment necessary for regulation of body temperature, for example, in cold climates or in hot climates. And then when we have some sort of a, an immune or stressor challenge to the animal, those additional nutrient requirements will be lumped into maintenance and, uh, of course, would also take nutrients available from, from growth. So growth in this period of life, of course, is mostly increase in the, the frame size or stature and so on, and that's predominantly constituted by the bone and muscle of the, the growing calf. So protein is a, a, a critical nutrient during this time as it helps form the matrix of the bone and lay down the, the different muscle systems. Now, one of the problems for the last several decades has been that we don't really have any good goals or standards to look at calf performance. How do we know as a producer or one of our clients that uh, the calf operation is performing uh, as, as well as it should be? Is it performing up to industry standards? So several years ago, the Dairy Calf and Heifer Association came out with the, the first gold standards, uh, which are now being revised, but I, I imagine the same types of messages will still be there. So the standards that the Dairy Calf and Heifer Association set were to decrease mortality to less than 5%, and note that that's mortality or calves alive at 24 hours. Uh, so that's their cutoff for um, when an animal is stillbirth versus uh, died after after uh, the stillbirth period. Second standard relates to morbidity or, or illness and deals with a number of treatments for diarrhea and respiratory disease, goals less than 25% and 10% respectively. And the third goal then relates to growth performance and will be directly related to some of our concepts in nutrition today. So the, the idea that was established here was to double the birth weight of the calf by eight weeks of age, 56 days of age. So for a typical Holstein birth weight, we would have the, the uh, heifer gaining at an average of 0.73 kilos a day from birth through 56 days of age. One of the interesting things when these standards came out was that there was some criticism that they were not um, really not very aggressive or progressive but I think it surprised many people exactly um, how difficult it was to uh, have that kind of sustained growth rate and reach the doubling of birth weight. I think since, since that time, uh, we've made quite a bit of progress, certainly in, in many herds. Now, why this emphasis on, on early growth rate? And this is an uh, important theme that we'll be revisiting here during the comments today. So a little bit of my soapbox comments here. Um, I think that, that all of us that are working with the dairy industry are in the food production business. 
And we can use that analogy of a, a production industry um, to think about what we're doing with various aspects of, of the dairy enterprise. So our, our production machinery, if you will, is a collection of very highly sophisticated bioreactors. That's our cows. And if we're going to keep replacing those production units, it takes about 24 months to build one of those and put it into service. So that business then is, is converting uh, human inedible feed into very high-quality human foods. Uh, in all things we do then as a business, we have to think about the efficiency, which deals with output to input relationships. And we have to have the, uh, those efficiency indicators as major metrics in evaluating the enterprise. So for example, we use melt per feed as the kind of the, the, the gross feed uh, efficiency evaluator for our milking cows. But we haven't typically done that for calves, and I think we need to. Uh, we need to think about cost per unit of body weight gain rather than cost per day or the gain per feed dry matter intake. How can we maximize that so that we end up with the best quality production unit at the end of the day? Thinking of, of investments or costs, we have to evaluate them on what they do for us in terms of the, the final endpoint. So some kind of a measure of are we getting a better heifer for that change in investment cost? I think this is a major challenge yet for many of the, the people that we work with in the dairy industry. I don't think any other manufacturing business would would focus only on the cost per day. Um, certainly it's an important factor, but it also relates critically, it's interrelated with uh, effects on efficiency and profitability of the enterprise. So uh, moving on then back to some of the, the biology and nutritional aspects. Um, we need to remember that uh, healthy, rapid growth is going to begin at birth, actually in the maternity pen. So aspects of maternity pen management are, are critical and beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today. But things like the, the calving uh, protocols, are workers well-trained to recognize the normal birth, prog um, birth progress, to identify when cows need assistance, to give appropriate assistance. Um, assisting the calf after it's born, going through the normal processing um, uh, tasks such as dipping the navel with, with iodine, for example. All these are, are critical parts of getting the calf off to, the, to a good start. The second part of that then would be the colostrum program, which we'll, we'll just review a little bit in the, the next couple of slides. So we have to have a good or an excellent colostrum program to have maximal impact on efficient growth during the, the uh, pre-weaning period. Colostrum is an old story, of course, for those of us that have, have worked with the industry, but it doesn't mean it's any less important today than it was many years ago. And we still struggle with colostrum management on, on too many farms, I believe. Uh, as nature's first food, there are a lot of functions for colostrum clearly shown to be the single most important management factor for improving chances of calf health and survival. For example, the, the NOM study back in the late 1990s estimated that 31% of all heifer deaths could be prevented just by improving colostrum management. We know the, the immune factors in a transfer of, of antibodies to the young calf. Sometimes forget about the nutritional importance of colostrum a very rich source of, of many nutrients, 
the majority of those nutrients being much more concentrated within colostrum than they are in, uh, in mature milk. And again, a strategy for the mother to transfer some of these vital nutrients that may be stored in the calf for some period of time uh, to get that calf off to a, a good start until it can establish its own source of, of external nutrition. Um, lots of aspects that have been emphasized in colostrum management, and we'll just use the, the commonly um, identified ones of as quickly as possible, getting an adequate quantity into the calf, uh, looking at colostrum quality in terms of its antibody content, and certainly the, a very important aspect that's really been emphasized in the last decade or so, sanitation and cleanliness. Um, the, the appreciation for how quickly Colostrum can become contaminated with bacteria and other pathogens at every step of the way from collection from the cow through to delivering it to the calf. So very important um, aspect that's um, been given more attention in recent years. Again, we're dealing with a, a race against time here to get those colostral antibodies into the calf's digestive system uh, before the environmental bacteria and other pathogens. Classroom is a lot more than just the, the antibodies and the nutrition, though. Um, in recent years, we've also came to an understanding of the richness of colostrum in terms of other factors that may influence the growth and long-term productivity of the calf. Specifically here, there are a host of non-nutritive or non-antibody substances found in colostrum that may deliver what's called the lactocrine effect or lactocrine um, effects to the young calf. Again, this is the, these are materials that are passed from the mother to the calf within the colostrum. Uh, again, in many cases in, in much more concentrated um, fashion than we have in mature milk. So a variety of substances here that are, are of interest, various peptide and steroid hormones, various growth factors, cytokines and other factors involved with the immune system, uh, recently identified microRNAs, uh, probably more and more will continue to be identified and the possible functions to the calf will become appreciated. But at this point, we know that we have to have adequate or, or excellent cluster management to take advantage of improved nutrition early in life. I'm going to just use this slide, which is some of our data from a few years ago. Uh, Mike Van Amberg's group at Cornell has a, a nice, more recent study that's coming out with these same ideas. Uh, in this study, we use purchased male calves that we shipped in, and we're comparing either a, a conventional limited rate of milk replacer or um, uh, an intensified or accelerated type of, of milk replacer feeding program. We looked at growth then of those calves over the first five, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, five weeks, and after the experiment, retrospectively went back and compared that in calves that had adequate or inadequate or poor colostrum status. And we assessed those or grouped the calves based on the blood IgG concentration at, uh, at two days of age. And so you can see the cutoff that we used the number of calves that fell into each of these groups. As you can see, about half or so of the bull calves we purchased had not had adequate colostrum, which is uh, not surprising, unfortunately, and the, the average IgG content for each of the two groups. So the colostrum status in the control or low, uh, low milk replacer fed groups 
didn't seem to matter in terms of the growth rate over the first five weeks. But for the intensified group, there was a significant difference with about 100 grams more of average daily gain for calves that had adequate colostrum status versus inadequate. Um, this was independent of, of apparent health events in the calves. And so we believe that it's related to the provision in the colostrum of an adequate amount and profile of these non-nutritive or lactocrine-type substances that help to turn on the various systems of the calf, start the, the intestinal tract function and, and development, uh, turn on the muscle uh, to allow it to grow, and so on. So a very exciting area that's uh, getting a lot of attention by many groups around the world. So moving on then from colostrum into the other aspects of nutrition, and just a reminder about water. Uh, as I said earlier, probably the most neglected and often uh, uh, inadequate or, or unsuitable component of the whole nutritional scheme. Uh, the picture just shows a nice uh, calf stall that I saw in China several years ago. Uh, the nice stainless steel bowl there, but unfortunately it's uh, completely dry, which doesn't do the, the calf much good if there's no water in it. Calves need free water, even though they're being fed milk or milk replacer. The milk replacer or milk is going to bypass the rumen by the reticular groove closure, whether it's fed by nipple or bucket. So the calves need supplemental water to get into the developing rumen and support the establishment of the, the microbial environment. And the relationships are uh, about one kilogram of starter intake to four liters of water. Uh, it's very important. If we're limiting water intake, we're probably going to be limiting starter intake and certainly limiting overall growth potential. So as we move then uh, into the, the milk feeding stage, a number of options, of course, for feeding the calf. But we need to remember here that as a, a young mammal, calves are born with the digestive machinery to use only milk as their source of nutrients. They're not designed to be consuming calf starter uh, or forage in the first few days of life, and even most non-milk ingredients used in milk replacers. So the ability to use these other non-milk ingredients is going to develop fairly rapidly over the first three weeks of age or so. Um, the ability to use forage, however, will take several weeks until the rumen is, is fully established and we can get the, the cellulose digesting, fiber digesting population and environment uh, established in the, the young calf. I always like to look at uh, the, the natural situation, so Mother Nature's feeding program. I think uh, not to say that we need to return to, uh, return to that type of management, but I think it helps describe the boundaries of the system that we're working with and maybe offer some areas to work with instead of against. So cow's milk, as we know, is about 25 to 26 percent protein on a dry solids basis. Um, the feeding rate is at least twice of what we've come to think of as, as conventional feeding rate. So a, a kilo to a kilo and a half or more solids per day versus a half kilo of milk solids offered. That's going to be spread over several meals. It may range from six to 12 meals over the course of the day if the calf has ad libitum access to milk or, or to its mother. The first solid feed that the calf probably consumed from a, an evolutionary standpoint would have been early spring grass, very lush quality grass, 
high in sugars, fructans, um, very non-lignified plant cell walls, and so probably a great feed for delivering a, a higher butyrate fermentation. You know, butyrate is key to, um, to developing the rumen papillae or the rumen epithelium. Weaning um, in, under the natural system, or if we think of, of beef cattle, would be much later in life than we typically do with dairy calves, and a, a much more gradual process than we often make the, the weaning process in dairy calves. So again, a, a very different set of, uh, of paradigms here from what we have come to think of um, how calves are raised. So what happens then if you leave a, a, a modern Holstein calf with a cow? This was a, a very interesting experiment about 10 or 15 years ago now at the University of British Columbia in which they did leave Holstein calves with their mother and compared that with a group of calves that were fed 10% uh, of body weight as milk from a, a bucket. So if you look at the right-hand figure here, the calves that were separated at day one and fed a limited amount of milk, you can see the, the small amount of weight gain over the first 14 days. But the calves that were left to uh, suckle their mothers had a huge weight gain during that time period. And if you look at the average daily gain, it was about three times faster for the calves that were fed with, uh, that were left with the mother compared with the limit fed group. And I think the, the rate of gain over a kilo a day in the first two weeks of age would, um, it certainly surprised me when I first started to think about these things uh, many years ago. I, th I don't think a lot of people would, would appreciate or predict that a dairy calf could grow that rapidly in the first two weeks of life. But that's the, that's the machinery, that's the potential of the calf that we have not uh, taken advantage of. So the question that, that we and others have been asking um, over the last um, 10 to 15 years is, are we feeding enough milk for growth and health? Certainly we know clearly that the more milk we feed, the faster the calves will, will grow during that period. I think uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek that the best innovation in calf nutrition, calf feeding over the last uh, several years has been introduction of three-quarter, three-liter, and four-liter nursing bottles. Uh, too often we have dictated nutrition of calves by the bottle size or a milk replacer scoop size or milk replacer bag weight uh, rather than having anything to do with, with uh, the calf's biology itself. So I, I think this has helped in a lot of cases increase the amount of milk or milk replacer fed during early life. Now, as I said, the NRC has established requirements for the, the young calf and calf through the weaning transition. Um, Mike Van Amberg and I uh, worked based on some of our recent body composition experiments to um, tweak those requirements to modify the equations from NRC to more accurately um, predict what we see in the calves um, being fed more as, as uh, dairy replacements rather than as veal calves, which a lot of the earlier data was, was based on. And so these uh, modified equations have been adopted by AMTS in their um, calf prediction section and uh, do a much better job of predicting higher, the effects of higher feeding rates and higher rates of gain. If we want calves to grow more rapidly during the milk feeding period, then we need to feed them more milk solids. Uh, that shouldn't be much of a surprise. Um, as that 
increased intake of milk solids occurs, we're going to be providing more energy, providing more protein. And because of the relationships between protein and energy, uh, the protein content of the diet has to increase progressively as we go to high growth rates. And so a couple of, of take-homes from that slide, I hope. First of all is if we're thinking back to conventional body rate, uh, conventional rates of body gain, where we might be gaining uh, 200 grams to 300 grams per day, we probably would be fine with an 18 to 20 percent protein milk replacer fed at uh, the, the rates that we've been feeding it. However, if we want calves to grow anywhere close to their potential, we have to feed much more milk uh, early in life, and that milk or milk replacer has to contain a higher amount of protein than what we think of as a, a standard 2020 milk replacer. Again, the energy and protein supplies must be in the correct proportion to each other for the desired rate of gain. The energy intake will be primarily determined by the amount of milk or milk replacer that we're feeding. Uh, for example, it doesn't affect it too much whether we're thinking about a 15% fat or a 20% fat milk replacer. The biggest effect is going to be how much of that liquid feed are we providing per day. The protein intake by the calf, though, will be affected both by the amount fed, but also variations in the protein content of the milk replacer. And so, again, it's important to select the, the uh, appropriate milk replacer for the given desired performance rate. This is a, an example from uh, some Carrie Bartlett's work several years ago of the, the effect of increasing milk replacer um, amounts fed, and you can see the linear increase in average daily gain here as the calves were fed more uh, of the same milk replacer. And importantly, we found no effect on the composition of that body weight gain. So we're not creating fat animals when we have a, a sufficient amount of protein provided in the increased um, amounts of the liquid feed daily. If you'll note, inside the bars, there, the black numbers there are the gain-to-feed ratio. And so we're becoming more efficient also in a linear fashion as we're feeding more milk during early life. Uh, the same idea as uh, the dilution of maintenance concept. So there's more performance relative to the overhead costs of, of maintaining the animal. Protein is critically important in the, the early life period. This is, uh, again, data from one of our experiments where we compared two feeding rates and also different protein contents in the milk replacers. And you can see if we look at the body protein gain, whole body protein gain, compared with protein intake, it's a very tight linear relationship. So protein is, is uh, uh, very important for laying down that uh, frame, as we mentioned earlier, and very critical to the rate of overall uh, body protein. So why do we so often fight Mother Nature instead of working with her? That's, again, back on my soapbox a bit. But this is, a, this is another aspect where we've deviated from the calf's biology so much that perhaps we've lost sight of, of what's normal and what's not. So many years ago, it was a management decision to try to limit milk or milk replacer intake to the typical rates of 8 to 10 percent of body weight. There were a number of reasons to do that, but the most uh, commonly cited reason was to 
try to promote early intake of starter and then allow earlier weaning. Of course, decreasing labor needs as well as the, uh, the unit cost of the feeds being provided. One of the consequences of that strategy is that starter dry feed will provide only a minor contribution to the total nutrient intake until uh, at least the second week of life or so. And growth then becomes very proportional to the rate of starter intake in that type of system. Here's, this is a summary figure from um, the Purina Research Program uh, from many years ago that Al Kurtz and colleagues provided. And it shows the, the influence of a, of a very aggressive early weaning program. So the calves were only fed 450 grams or a pound per day of, of milk replacer powder for the first three weeks of age. They dropped one feeding then, so only half a pound or, or 225 grams of, of powder during the week, during the fourth week, and they were weaned then at the end of four weeks. So the figure shows a couple of, of uh, relationships here. The blue curve is starter intake by week, and the red curve is the average daily gain. So you can see in the first two weeks of life, the rate of gain is, is very low, about what we predict from the, the, like the slide I showed earlier with low rates of milk replacer intake, about 250 grams per day. As starter intake increases and essentially doubles each week, then the calves have enough nutrients to start growing more rapidly. And so you can see a, a big increase here by the third week of life. But then when they removed one feeding, uh, the growth rate uh, stopped increasing at such a rapid rate. The calves were not yet able to fully replace the milk with uh, starter intake. So the, the, the point again is that the, the rate of, of growth becomes very proportional to how the calves are, are eating starter in such a system. Now we know that calves that are fed higher rates of, of milk or milk replacer will grow much more rapidly, as we've already mentioned. Um, and the main difference here is going to be within the first three weeks of life or so. When we take advantage of that rapid, uh, the, the potential for rapid growth rate, after that then the growth curves might be uh, a little bit more parallel. But really thinking about what's happening in the first three weeks of life if we're limiting the, the intake of milk during that period and calves are not growing anywhere close to their potential. Um, if we're doing this correctly with milk or a, an appropriate milk replacer, we're increasing frame size. This is withers height of the calves and you can see the continuing divergence of the withers height uh, in the calves fed at the, a greater rate of milk replacer feeding than the, the conventional or control calves. Again, we're not depositing excess fat, just the amount of fat that, that we might want with normal growth and to provide some, uh, some measure of reserves to the calf. So an important part of this, um, this argument, of course, is, is the so what issue. Why, why would we want to spend more money during early life so the outcomes or the uh, beneficial impacts of better early nutrition are certainly important. And we'll, we'll show some examples here of, of where we see benefits. So here's some of the, the most important, I think. Um, first of all, capitalizing on that rapid early growth potential that, that we've uh, ignored for many years. 
certainly the most efficient time for, for relative weight and height increases in the, the entire rearing period. If we're doing that, we should be able to decrease the days to breeding size and by extension then days to first calving. Increasing evidence that we are able to improve health, the ability of calves to withstand the challenge, and probably the most exciting is the, the um, growing appreciation that we are having positive effects on future productivity. This is another summary from Al Kurtz and his colleagues that looked at heifer uh, growth over the, the, the period from birth to first calving. And what's shown here in the open bars is the percentage body weight increase relative to the previous two-month period. Um, we could do the same thing for withers height, but this, this shows the percentage change in body weight. So you can see that the calves are the most efficient in terms of relative change in this very early period of life. It's basically decreasing from birth down to um, the, the time that the animal is, is going to enter the milking string. So we, that's a time it seems that we should be taking advantage of that, that ability for efficient growth. The black bars show the feed cost per kilo of body weight gain uh, under these economic conditions. But again, the point being the, the cost per kilo of gain are the lowest early in life when the animal is depositing a lot of protein and, and body frame and become increasingly higher than as it nears its mature size towards, uh, towards freshening. This is uh, one slide just to, to point out one of the studies that's shown recently that, that calves fed more milk early in life are better able to withstand an infectious challenge. This was a study at, at Cornell uh, that looked at a challenge with cryptosporidium. Uh, calves were challenged on day three of age, and the comparison here shows how the animals uh, responded if they were on a low rate of milk replacer feeding, 450 grams per day, or a high rate of milk replacer feeding, over a kilo of solids per day. And you can see that during that time of, of challenge, uh, the calves that were fed conventionally actually lost a little bit of weight, where the calves fed on the high plane of nutrition continued growing through that uh, crypto challenge and we're able to resolve the, uh, the infection uh, more quickly. So again, more reserves, more of, of ability of the calf to uh, divert the nutrients needed to run an immune system, um, certainly a benefit of, of having more, having a better nutritional status early in life. And finally, the, the production effects. So there's uh, lots of different data sets that have appeared where milk yield was reported as a function of what happened to the pre-weaning uh, feeding program. However, most of those studies in themselves were too small in terms of numbers of, of animals to detect production differences. Uh, we just can't conduct controlled experiments large enough to, uh, to establish the numbers needed. But if we look at the, the catalog of these studies that are available, and I think this is a, a reasonably up-to-date list, um, you can see that the responses within study, although perhaps not significant within study, uh, all are generally positive, with a couple of exceptions. Um, but certainly a, a pattern of studies there that would indicate that there's something going on. And indeed, when uh, the Cornell group use some meta-analysis techniques to pool many of those studies together. 
Um, there was a significant effect of improved early nutrition on first lactation milk yield. And you can see the relationship is about 435 kilograms of first lactation milk for an improvement in um, uh, of at least 75% in early milk intake. So exciting, this is, uh, remains somewhat of a controversial topic as to, to what the, the effect is and why it, it happens or doesn't happen in many studies, and also the biology of what's happening here, uh, still an area of active investigation, but uh, very exciting in terms of the, of the impact of improved early nutrition on subsequent productivity. So how do we increase milk solids intake? There's actually a, a number of studies that could be employed. We could simply increase the amount of liquid feed that is fed, so going from two liters of feeding to three liters per feeding. We could increase the number of feedings daily. Uh, surprisingly, uh, a lot of producers have, um, uh, have been moving to a, a three feeding system here in the U.S. in, in uh, the last several months or a couple of years. Um, increasing the solids concentration, we can do that to a point. I think the practical limit is probably about 18% solids, even with excellent water management. Uh, there's, there's some risk of, um, of uh, going beyond that, particularly if water management isn't excellent on farms. Uh, there's a number of products or, or fortifiers available or strategies to increase milk solids using pasteurized milk. Uh, that, that um, may be uh, quite useful. And certainly the, the uh, increased interest in automated calf feeders is a, a wonderful strategy to be able to tailor milk increases and milk decreases around weaning to increase milk intake. A lot of excitement there for the potential to capitalize on some of this biology. Uh, just a note about whole milk, I, I certainly am a, a passionate believer that if we're feeding whole milk, particularly waste milk to calves, that we have to be pasteurizing. Um, again, the most vulnerable animals on the farm, benefits are proven clearly in terms of uh, health and, and growth, and I think it's just something that we as an industry have to take a pretty, uh, a pretty hard stand on. Milk replacers certainly have many advantages. Uh, maybe the, the easiest way to ensure biosecurity without the cost and labor of a pasteurizer, particularly for smaller operations. Uh, generally a good degree of quality control and consistency if we're dealing with reputable manufacturers. And uh, again, smaller farms perhaps more convenient than, uh, than going to the, the additional operation of a, a pasteurizer. The feeding aspects of milk replacer are very important, or mixing milk replacer with, with waste milk, for example. Um, correct and consistent volume for the feeding program goals, uh, not varying those or, or having a lot of, of variation from day to day. Uh, mixing so that the concentration is at the desired rate, and that's also consistent day to day. And temperature, adequate uh, hot enough temperature at mixing, a temperature near the, the calf's body temperature at delivery to the calf, again, maintaining those constant from day to day, and then, of course, the, the quality nutritional balance of the, the milk replacer that we're feeding. So achieving successful results, uh, enhancing early growth, is, is not necessarily a, an easy process like most other 
good programs on the dairy farm, it does require management. And so several aspects that are important for early growth are shown here. We've already talked about the colostrum program and the importance of supplemental water. Uh, we've talked about appropriate milk replacers and, and the importance of their mixing and delivery. And we'll talk now a little bit more about the starter and weaning management and how that moves on into post-weaning nutrition for the calf. Weaning transition is, is certainly a, another transition period that, that we need to think about for the young calf. Uh, another very critical stage of the calf's life where it's subject to many stressors. We have obvious changes in diet as we remove the, the liquid feed. A calf has to live entirely on the, the solid feeds with the starter. We may have a change in, in location or environment. Uh, this might be the first time the calves have to live socially with other calves. And so there's many, many adjustments that can lead to growth slumps, behavioral stresses, and a, a greater incidence of disease. <clears throat> so there's a number of challenges in this time that also uh, may be more important with greater rates of milk feeding or that, that cause some additional management considerations. One thing that we know very clearly that happens and probably shouldn't be surprised by it is that if we increase milk or milk replacer intake early in life, there's going to be a, a decrease in starter intake or it will delay the intake by uh, a week or two relative to calves fed less milk. So this is fairly simple to, to appreciate, I think, if we just remember that like, a, like in a, a mature ruminant, there is a certain maximum dry matter that the calf will consume. With young calves, that's probably, under most circumstances, it's in the range of 2 to 2.5% two of their body weight as, as total solids, whether that's milk solids or starter. So it's, it's natural, then, if we have very high rates of milk early in life, that uh, they will not be able to have the same increases in starter uh, at that time. So an example, just comparing the results, this is an experiment from, uh, from Kate Coles that showed that calves um, uh, fed a conventional limited milk program, had much greater early increases in starter intake up through weaning. The calves that were fed an intensified program were somewhat delayed in their starter intake. Once we begin to decrease the amount of milk fed, the rates of starter intake will, will begin to increase very rapidly, uh, just as in the, the conventionally fed calf. But certainly the effect is there, and we need to understand how to manage that. Now, starter concentrates are, of course, critical for rumen development and being able to turn that animal over into a, a functioning ruminant. We can summarize the effects of the, the diet on rumen development with a, a, a few points here. Milk and hay or forage do very little at the early age to develop rumen epithelium or the rumen papillae uh, because the, the hay or forage in this case is uh, very poorly fermentable and milk um, shouldn't be going into the rumen for, uh, uh, to be fermented there. So the grain starter, or in the case of the, the grazing animal, perhaps fresh grass, particularly the sugars there, are the key to leading to development of rumen papillae through stimulating VFA production. 
The papillae development, epithelial development can occur by three to four weeks of age with good starter management, and the process takes about three weeks from start to finish, no matter when it's initiated in the animal. So if we begin at shortly after birth, or if we hold the animal off milk for many months, the process of, of epithelial development will take about three weeks. Many of you have probably seen these pictures or pictures similar. This is a, a series from Penn State workers. Um, this shows the rumen and reticulum lining of a six-week-old calf that was fed only milk, no solid feeds. So we can see the rumen on the right with no appreciable papillae development. We can see the, the buds or the areas where those papillae will develop, but a very uh, smooth surface, uh, and the reticulum also not as developed and both a very pale, light color. So this is an undeveloped rumen epithelium. In contrast, this is the same age calf, six-week-old calf, that was fed both milk and a starter grain, and you can see the, the extensive development of the rumen papillae on the, the lining of the rumen, and the much deeper folds here associated with the reticulum or honeycomb, um, and also the darker color that's very characteristic of uh, the, the maturation of the rumen epithelium. If we compare a six-week-old calf that was fed only milk and dry hay, it doesn't look much different than the calf that was fed milk only. Uh, no appreciable papillae development or reticular development and very pale color. Again, the poor fermentability of hay as a, a source of nutrition for the developing microorganisms. Now, one of the problems that was uh, inherent in some of the early, much of the early research and also uh, in the field is that calves will stall out in terms of growth around weaning if we're uh, dealing with increased milk feeding rates. So an example here actually from one of our own studies, uh, this is average daily gain per day, so this is not total body weight. But during the milk feeding period when the calves were receiving more milk, they were growing much more rapidly than the conventional calves. But then when we started decreasing the milk intake, the rates of average daily gain slumped during this couple of week period around weaning until they resumed then after, uh, after the animals were completely weaned. Again, lots of, of data would show this, lots of field experience. Reasons for this probably relate to uh, the rumen not being developed adequately to make the transition at that time of, uh, of the calf's life or as abruptly as it's being made. This, these are data from Alex Bach's group in Spain, and also there's uh, work from the Aki group here in, in the U.S. that have shown decreased digestibility of uh, primarily of starter uh, the week after weaning in calves that were fed greater rates of milk before weaning. So you can see that the calves that were fed in, uh, intensively or an accelerated program had lower digestibilities of dry matter, organic matter, protein, energy, and particularly for NDF, for fiber. And this is an indicator that the rumen uh, microbial population and the epithelial structure perhaps have not reached the same level of maturation as the control or conventionally fed calves. We do know, though, that with proper nutritional management during and after weaning, we can prevent most of that weaning slump 
and calves will continue to grow uh, rapidly and, and uh, in many cases continue to diverge from the conventionally fed animals. Again, from one of our studies a few years ago, <clears throat> the calves that were fed a greater amount of milk were, uh, were heavier from a very early point in age. We maintained that uh, difference through weaning and actually continued to diverge slightly by 20 weeks of age and maintained the difference even by 35 weeks of age. So we know that we can manage that, uh, that time around weaning to prevent the drastic weaning slump. One of the side things to remember here, not related to nutrition, but uh, again, being the transition period here, we don't want to pile a lot of other stressors onto the calves at the same time as we're changing the nutrition. So not moving or regrouping calves for a week or so after weaning, not abruptly changing the, the starter to a grower in the first group, and not doing any other management or medical treatments um, at the same time. We'll try to, to minimize the, the number of stressors that the calves have to deal with during this, this weaning transition. In terms of meeting the nutrient requirements of calves around weaning then, we're going to look at um, factors related to, to starter providing the, the nutrients. Um, starter will provide less energy per unit of solids than milk solids, uh, primarily because of the lower digestibility, slightly lower gross energy content. So the efficiency of use of the metabolizable energy products from VFA and other, other digestion products is not greatly different, but it's really the digestibility that we have to consider. So according to the NRC, the last NRC calculation, starter was uh, only about 65 to 70% of the ME uh, compared with milk replacer. Uh, and as a result, growth will only be about two-thirds of that on an equal amount of dry matter from starter as what we would see on milk replacer. So we can illustrate this by, by using the NRC to, um, to propose a couple of scenarios here where we have two different body weights of calves at weaning, either 60 or 80 kilograms, and then two different rates of average daily gain that we want the calves to continue to grow at, 600 or 800 grams per day. So you can see that even at the low growth rate with a uh, the smallest calf, the NRC says the calf would need a 1.5 kilos of uh, starter to support that rate of growth and up to over two kilos of starter per day at the, the larger calf growing more rapidly. Now there's been some concern that the, the NRC is underestimating the value of starter, and I think there's, there's some things that, that uh, maybe need to be changed there. But the point is still that the starter will not be able to replace pound for pound or kilo per kilo milk solids in terms of supporting growth. So just because of the differences in the energy content and how it's used by calves, we need somewhere in the, the 1.8 to 1.6 to 1.8 times more starter than milk replacer to support the same amount of body weight gain. So perhaps it's not surprising that many calves do slump in growth for a few days around the time of weaning. So starter formulation is a, a whole other topic and many uh, successful commercial starters, many, uh, many individually uh, formulated starters that can support good growth in calves. But some of the general characteristics here that, that need to be evaluated would be palatability, first and foremost, if the calves won't eat the starter or, or eat it 
uh, more poorly than other formulations, then we're, we're certainly not going to achieve the results we need. Sufficient fiber, so we have to have uh, NDF fiber to be fermented to support rumen health, uh, adequate particle size, general minimums, 15% uh, NDF, although with more use of, um, uh, of soluble fibers and so on. Other uh, types of fiber, we may actually see many starters that are higher than that in NDF. Easily fermentable carbohydrates. Again, it's going to be the fermentation of, of principally starch uh, and, and some of the um, uh, more easily fermented structural carbohydrates that will support that rumen development. We need to be supplying protein or nitrogen both for the rumen and also for direct digestion post-ruminally by the calf. Uh, so typically we would be thinking, uh, according to the NRC, of 18% of crude protein starters, uh, but much higher uh, often used for um, calves that are growing more rapidly earlier in life. Um, oil seeds or fat sources generally have not uh, improved performance. In fact, most cases have been slightly negative. So we generally try to minimize fat provision. Corn byproducts, some of them have, have also seemed to be less palatable than, than others. And of course, the mineral and vitamin supplementation, so very important as the, the first solid feed here. Now, I want to show just what the, the pattern of daily starter intake is um, as we um, uh, work through the weaning process. So again, I'll use some of our data here uh, from Jennifer Stamey's work. Um, so this shows, again, daily starter intakes across the weaning transition for calves that were fed a control conventional program or a couple of intensified programs uh, that differed in the, the protein content of the starter. The major point I want to make is what happens when we make a reduction in milk intake. So here we drop to one milk feeding per day, and the calves then will quite quickly increase starter intake, regardless of the, the treatments here. Over the next three days or so, the intake will, uh, will increase, approximately double, and kind of reach a new plateau then for a few days. And when we finally wean completely a week later, you can see the same thing happens. So quite rapid increases over a period of three or four days in starter intake. So if the calf is able to digest the starter feed, uh, if the rumen is adequately prepared to make that transition, then the increases in intake necessary to support the growth will be quite rapid. One of the, the problems in this study is that we, um, we were initiating weaning here at the same age, regardless of whether the calves were ready or not. And so uh, the starter intake is much lower, and we did have somewhat of a growth slump around the time of, of weaning. So adequate starter intake for a period before weaning is still very important. This uh, figure looks at the uh, relationship between starter intake in the week before weaning and average daily gain in the weaning week, or week um, uh, that we are weaning actually the, going through the final weaning of calves. So you can see the very uh, strong relationship here between the pre-weaning starter intake and post-weaning or, or weaning average daily gain. Again, just illustrating the importance of being able to utilize the starter and make that smooth transition. So we can use the relationship there to say, for example, that if we want calves to continue growing at a kilo a day, uh, according to these data, they should be eating 1.3 kilos of starter 
the week before we, we begin the weeding process. Other factors that have been investigated uh, with calves fed greater amounts of milk include the time or the age of weaning. This was another uh, British Columbia experiment that looked at a conventional low plane of nutrition or high milk feeding, either weaned at the same early age, weaned completely um, uh, by the seventh week, or that was fed later to uh, 12 to 13 weeks of age. So this top figure shows the milk intake. Starter intake is shown in the bottom. Uh, the calves that were fed more milk had lower rates of starter intake compared with the, um, I may have misspoke their calves, for the higher amounts of milk had lower starter intake compared with the lower milk intake calves. Uh, again, you can see the same rates of change that we've already discussed. The right-hand panel here shows the, uh, the weight gain as a percentage of body weight during weaning and then the week after weaning. So the middle uh, bar here, the mean and, and the variation of the data, is for the calves that were fed the high amount of milk and then weaned at an early age. And you can see during weaning and even after weaning, they're struggling relative to the uh, conventionally fed calves or to the later fed uh, higher milk intake calves. So there is something to be, to be um, understood here or considered about weaning age if we're going to be relying more on, on greater milk intakes early in life. Another factor relates to the, uh, the, the speed of weaning. And slower weaning or more gradual weaning will improve starter intake and perhaps ease that weaning transition. Um, again, another British Columbia experiment. These calves were fed with an auto feeder. Um, one group was, fed, was weaned abruptly, so milk, a high rate of milk intake was stopped uh, just abruptly with no decrease. Another group was weaned over a period of four days, gradual uh, reduction of milk over that period. Another group over uh, 10 days, and then the final group began at 22 days. So the starter intakes were greater for the, the uh, calves that were uh, with the longest weaning period. You can see the abruptly weaned calves here were at a, a real disadvantage in terms of intake around weaning. Uh, the four-day calves probably uh, also not quite enough time to get the starter intake up there. The 10-day weaning group did the best in terms of maintaining its growth, uh, that the advantage in growth early and, and still allowing a, a smooth weaning. So some degree of, of gradual adjustment certainly is important particularly with, with high milk intakes. Now, the last topic I want to address today relates to forage intake and forage uh, offering to calves. This is a topic that's, um, that's been ongoing discussion, quite controversial. Um, and again, coming back into the discussion again in recent years, and I, I think there's a lot of... Uh, uh, very tightly held opinions here that, that maybe we can find some common ground and come to an understanding about um, what's really happening here in terms of, of forage provision. So first, uh, just think about what the calves would do, again, if they had access to uh, forage availability. This is a farm I visited in China. I've actually been there a couple of times. Uh, this is the first weaning group of calves, about half of this pen. Um, pretty comfortable facilities, dry, they have sun shade, there's adequate space even though 
uh, a, a, probably a too big a group of, of first calves. If you go into the, the feeding structure into the barn and look down the, the feed row, this is the way they were feeding the calves in this first group after weaning. They had a, a starter concentrate put out separately from ad libitum alfalfa hay, and this was a, a very nice, uh, high-quality alfalfa hay. So it appears that we have calves selecting either one, but if, you, if I back away and show you the full picture, uh, most of the calves here are, are choosing to eat that very nice alfalfa hay compared with the starter. Uh, it was really quite surprising to see the calves eat that. Long-stemmed, uh, eating the, the entire stems, um, kind of different than, than some of the picture that many of us have, have gotten to have about calves and forage. But certainly in this environment, the calves were very eager to eat the hay in preference to the starter. So the arguments that we've had for many years against offering forages relate to that very aspect. If we're limiting intake of the concentrates by offering free choice hay, the calves aren't going to grow well. Hay is not well digested and fermented in the young calf. So we get an accumulation of, of undigested, undigested mass there, a hay belly, and we have less concentrated intake, which is actually going to be able to be fermented and used by the calf for growth. We, we know that hay is not really necessary for development of the rumen volume to develop rumination, and it also does not reliably increase the, the rumen pH, which is usually quite low in the, the early calf rumen. That's part of the, the issue with developing fiber digestion. We have to increase the pH to the range where those fiber digesting organisms can uh, thrive and grow. So again, the arguments then would say we don't want to feed hay before weaning. Uh, unless calves are, are not bedded on any straw or if we're having bloating occur with a, a pelleted starter, um, we shouldn't be feeding hay, according to this logic. And that's a story that we've been uh, providing for many years. Now, uh, here's a, uh, an example of, again, of the impact of that. So here's, a, again, slides that I got from Jim Quigley, actually, but another uh, Chinese dairy farm that, that he visited. I saw similar things. Here's a group of calves that are, are still on milk. They're very sleek, well-fed, uh, nice hair coats, doing very well before weaning, most of them. But then the weaning group went into this situation. So calves that were, again, offered a, a very poor quality forage, um, free choice, a limited amount of starter concentrate, and very quickly these nice milk-fed calves had turned into this. So very unthrifty calves, uh, rough hair coats, hay bellies, not growing very well, uh, a lot of respiratory issues. So this is a very common scenario that we see with uh, inappropriate hay feeding and, and limited concentrate feeding. But there are arguments being made for the provision of forage. And again, it's uh, two or three groups around the world conducting research in this area that have provided some very interesting data. There's evidence from a behavioral standpoint that calves seem to crave forage fiber or something that they can chew on, and that may uh, satisfy a number of behavioral needs and prevent stereotypic behaviors. So a small amount of hay actually has been shown to increase starter intake and overall feed efficiency in, in some of these experiments. Uh, it may keep the rumen papillae healthier and prevent abnormal growth. And so this, this camp has argued that we should be feeding small amounts of hay along with concentrates before weaning. 
So how do we reconcile these two very different opinions? Here's an example of, of the benefit of forage, perhaps. This is, a, uh, again, experiments from Alex Box group in which they compared the consumption of a concentrate, starter concentrate, and various forages offered free choice. Both, both the starter and the forage offered free choice within an experiment. And so they had a number of different forages. The, the haze were, were chopped so that the particle size was not a, a big issue. Um, and then what, they were, what I'm reporting for you here is the average daily gain and along with the forage to concentrate ratio of the uh, what the calves consumed. So for example, when calves were fed alfalfa hay, they had a 14 to 86 con forage to concentrate ratio consumed. So quite high rates of alfalfa consumption. When they were fed these other lower quality forages, they consumed less. But if you note, the average daily gain of the no forage and the high alfalfa hay is, is about the same. And the, some of the other forages here, the, the low-quality forages, were actually higher, uh, significantly higher than the controls. So it seemed then that the uh, uh, provision of small amounts of hay was beneficial for overall use of the, of the diet and for growth. I think that the thing that we need to appreciate and bring these back together is just what we're talking about here in terms of intake. So if we have calves with a one and a half kilo total dry matter intake, um, so whether that's uh, some remaining milk solids, starter and, and forage, but for a one and a half kilo total dry matter intake, the forage intake in these examples that appear to be beneficial would only be about 75 grams per day, very small amount of, of barley straw or wheat straw or, or grass hay versus 210 grams per day for alfalfa hay. And even that's not, not all that very much. So I think we can reconcile these quite easily from, a, from an understanding standpoint. Calves are offered a good quality hay, alfalfa hay in particular, that they're going to like to consume. They will easily consume more than they uh, perhaps should and limit concentrate intake. The other hays they're not going to eat enough of to, to really limit their intake of the concentrate and perhaps the overall effect in the rumen is beneficial. The management and practical aspect of this, though, becomes difficult because unless we're providing a small amount of chopped hay with the starter uh, or top dressed onto starter, it, it becomes difficult to manage. And more often than not, producers will be putting out uh, what amounts to free choice hay, and so we may have uh, some difficulty here. So I think the the uh, we're, we're perhaps approaching an understanding of why this occurs. Uh, management is, is perhaps still problematic. So to summarize that, I, I think that free choice alfalfa hay does clearly decrease starter intake, which is the most important for rumen development. We can uh, use small amounts of grass hay or straws that may actually increase starter consumption and improve overall efficiency of use in the rumen. Um, hay is, is not necessary for development of the volume and rumination. Uh, maybe up to 5% chopped hay could be provided with the starter, um, particularly if calves are not bedded on straw or prevent bloating. Um, but we still shouldn't be providing free choice hay before uh, at least um, four weeks, perhaps, after weaning. Um, not that the calves 
would necessarily consume too much of the grass hay, but it's 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 wasteful. Uh, they're not going to eat it, and so it, it it's increasing feed waste and feed cost. So to come back here to, to wrap things up, I, I think the argument that we still hear is is this is just an added expense. Feeding more milk is is too expensive. I don't see any any immediate benefit. Why should I be doing it? Um, I think again we have to we we have to be educating about cost versus investment. We have to move beyond cost per day as the metric that we're using for evaluating a calf feeding program. We have to be thinking about cost per, per pound or per kilo of body weight gain or cost per day of life until we get into the milking herd. We have to be thinking of this as a coordinated system with the heifer program. Uh, it's not just uh, the, the, the milk fed and weaning calf in isolation. This is a, a really good economic analysis and, and simple economic model that Mike Overton put together a few years ago, presented at the Western Dairy Management Conference. And I would I'd recommend that to you if uh, you want further uh, information and, and see what, uh, what the economic outcome is. Um, their, their conclusion in this paper was, uh, according to the quote below there, however, even with what some would consider to be an overly conservative approach to modeling the two programs, there should be no doubt to the economic advantage of the intensive approach to rearing dairy replacement heifers. Again, I refer that to you. It's a, a great summary, uh, and you see all the assumptions that they built into their analysis. So I'll leave you with these conclusions before we go to the, the questions. Uh, management for greater early growth should also improve health and decrease mortality. These systems are very closely tied together. Increased milk feeding or milk replacer feeding does improve early growth. If we're doing it properly, we can decrease age at first calving, and the evidence is, is becoming very strong that we're going to see a, a better cow, increased milk yield. Uh, proper starter and weeding management can preserve that early growth and continue the, the growth rate um, without major lags during the weaning transition. Um, we need good classroom management, excellent classroom management, and supplemental water provided, uh, very limited or, or no hay as part of the, these programs. And again, thinking cost per unit of weight or frame increase, and if we're doing things correctly, uh, this type of program will pay dividends. So that, uh, thank you all for your attention. Marianne, I'll, I'll turn it back to you now and we can move into the, the question period. Thanks everybody. Hi, Dr. Drakeley. Thank you so much. I, calf feeding is very near and dear to me and I found your talk really interesting. Um, before we get to the question and answer period, I want to introduce next month's nutritionist topic. We will be hosting Dr. Tom Jenkins from Clemson University in South Carolina. Dr. Jenkins received his PhD from Cornell University and following a postdoc at The Ohio State University has worked in dairy cattle nutrition at Clemson for over 30 years. His focus has been in the area of the use of fat in diets and work on rumen lipid metabolism. His talk will be on fatty acids in dairy cattle diets. So please be sure to join us for the next webinar on May 11th at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight. I want to thank the people who made this possible, Tom Taluki and AMTS USA and Global, Marcelo Hens-Ramos at 3R Lab in Brazil, and today Marcos Neves-Piera, Paula Torillo, 
in Argentina, our translators in each location, and we have our generous sponsors that help make it possible for us to get great speakers like Dr. Drakeley and to help manage the program. We thank our gold sponsor, Ajinomoto Heartland, for superior nutrition through amino acids. Our silver sponsors are Arm & Hammer Animal Nutrition, Virtus, makers of Strata with EPA, DHA Omega-3s, and Prequil with Omega-6s. Bronze sponsors are Jeffo, Life Made Easier, Dairy One Forage Laboratory, Dairyland Laboratories, and Quality Liquid Feeds. I will now open up the floor for questions. The English language listeners, please remember that we sometimes have trouble with audio, so if you will type your questions in the question and answer window, I will recognize who presented the question and I will ask the question for you. Um, Paula will ask questions for the Spanish language audience. Um, Marcos will ask questions for the Brazilian. Um, so, Dr. Drakeley, our first question is from Matt Stocking, and his question is, any comments on sodium requirements for calves and potential negative impact of water softener use in auto feeders? Yeah, that's a, a very good question, something that we've been hearing quite a bit about lately. Um, it, it would appear... Um, if we look at the sodium content of a lot of softened water, that it um, it may be higher than we want to have for the young calf in terms of uh, its impact on the the cation anion relationships and so on. Um, and so it's it's not what we would recommend necessarily for the calves. A um, couple of options there. One is is to not use the softened water, which of course may make the cleaning um, processes a little more difficult, but uh, some people have gone to a, a potassium-based um, softening salt, which will lead to greater potassium in the water, but not sodium. Um, as I understand, that's that's uh, much. I don't I don't know how much more, but it's more expensive. Um, so that's a consideration also. But I, I think it is a, a a real concern that we have to be thinking about with uh, uh, with with softened water. I think I said Matt, and it's actually Mark, and he has a follow-up question. Um, any p impact of hay intake on esophageal groove and milk pass or milk milk replacer bypass? I, to my knowledge, there's no data that would would suggest that that would interfere more than than solid feed intake. Uh, not to my knowledge, or more than starter intake. I mean. So, Paula, are you ready with a question? It's about mobility. How, how do you measure it? Are we ready for the answer now? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. So the first question um, first, the experience with whole corn uh, feeding programs from weaning through breeding age. Um, I, I think that I, I don't have much direct experience certainly see the, the programs in many areas of the country and around the world. Um, I think they can be successful uh, with, with proper supplementation. Uh, the, the, the animals are going to chew and ruminate the whole grain particles. Um, and, and so the people that are using those programs um, seem to have very good success. Well, let me let me just answer the the morbidity then uh, was measured as the number or the the uh, number of calves that required medical treatments for either diarrhea or for respiratory disease. Yes. 
relative to the total of uh, cabs. Yes, yes, the percentage of okay. cabs Thank that you. required treatment. Okay. Thank you. Um, Dr. Drakeley, I have a question from Donna Wirtz. Any comments on once-a-day feeding of fortified milk programs with 200, 250 grams of milk replacer added to 2.5 liters of whole milk as a stable feeding to weaning? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a – I'm really not a fan of once-daily feeding. I, again, going back to um, how – the calf would prefer to to eat, and the uh, probably the biggest problem in terms of the once a day programs are that that decreases the number of times that somebody is actually interacting with the calves and observing them and looking for problems. I think, it, particularly in in the uh, the early life period, uh, that's that's insufficient amounts of milk. And uh, I, I just I'm not a fan at all of of the interest in moving back to once daily feeding. Okay. Okay. There's a question about group feeding of calves. If it's a trend or of feeding calves in pairs, like thinking on concentrate intake, feed behavior, and even animal wealth. So I I think the the newer work that's come around with group housing and group feeding of calves is, is very interesting um, for the reasons that you've um, that you hinted at there. I think it's it's a, a much more um, natural situation, or calves can can express more of the behaviors. Uh, there's the competitive effects, which actually may help stimulate uh, overall feed intake and, and growth rates. Um, so I, I think from a welfare standpoint, there, there's certainly growing interest in that type of, of system. Uh, the, the feeding management is, uh, of course, is, is a, um, a concern uh, that we have to have a, an appropriate system where all calves are going to be able to drink enough. Um, the automated feeders are probably the, the the, the top, the best scenario, but there are, are people that make uh, other simpler systems of um, greater milk feeding, not necessarily 24 hours a day, but for limited um, uh, amounts of the day, uh, also make those systems work. I think the, from a, a standpoint of health and, and uh, well-being, the physical facility is, is really important. The ventilation of those facilities and the ability to keep uh, cl uh, keep clean air and, and dry bedding is, is really important. Uh, that one of the big problems we see with trying to introduce group feeders in old facilities, uh, the retrofitting is, is often problematic because you just can't uh, design the facility for proper ventilation. So I, I think those are some of the concerns. But if we have a, a, a facility with good ventilation and a good feeding system, uh, the the results can be very good. Certainly, the all in all out type approaches also has advantages for disease control. Okay, Marcos, do you have follow up questions? I yeah, have more. Uh, another one is about the biology of the mammary gland growth. For example, when you have high rates of gain before puberty, how how is this story? This old concept? Yeah. 
So the, the idea um, has been that if we have excessive growth rates that lead to fattening, uh, that we would have fat deposited in the, the mammary pad, the developing uh, or the, the undeveloped uh, mammary pad of the heifer, and that this would replace or interfere with secretory tissue as the animal then further developed into a, a milking animal. Um, a couple of points on that, and some of the, again, Cornell research here from a few years ago is, is really, I think, um, very effectively answered this. Um, one issue is that if we have fat being deposited in the, the mammary pad, we probably have fat being de deposited everywhere in the body, and so that we're just developing a, an overall fatter heifer, and it's not necessarily the fact that it's uh, the direct or specific deposition of fat in the mammary pad, it's just that we're, we're going to have problems with a fatter heifer, which we, we know uh, generally don't do as well as heifers in proper condition. Um, the other aspect, though, related to, to looking at the differences in growth rates, and I think that the, the uh, Cornell group showed very clearly that the rates of uh, DNA deposition, which would indicate the secretory function, are uh, kind of on a, a constant daily uh, amount per day. And so if we're getting heifers that are growing more rapidly and reaching, uh, reaching calving in fewer days, there may be less DNA deposited in the, the mammary gland, uh, but that's, that's not a function of this, this fattening and so on that, that uh, the older research was uh, how it was interpreted. So I, I think, again, that if we are um, if we're feeding appropriately and not getting fat heifers at that stage, then I think the risk of, of um, um, improper development of the mammary gland and leading to low production is, is uh, an outdated concept. Hey, Dr. Drakeley, I have three right off the top that I'm going to um, ask, and then I know that Paula has some. So the first is from Bill Top, and he says, what is your opinion of feeding extra supplemental essential lipids and butyrate to calves? Some of the work that's been done over recent years is, uh, I think, is interesting with regard to the, the um, essential fatty acids. Um, certainly, the profile can be different compared with whole milk, uh, whole milk fat. Uh, if we look at the profiles that are usually used in um, uh, in uh, uh, profiles of fats used in milk replacers, so the the essential fatty acids, linoleic and, and linolenic, um, may have some beneficial effect. Uh, the butyrate also is, uh, uh, I, th I think, an interesting story there. There's there's a number of roles of butyrate. One is, of course, in the rumen and developing uh, the rumen epithelium, but if we're feeding it in the, the milk, probably not a lot of that is going to get into the rumen. But it also may have stimulatory effects on the, the gut uh, in terms of how it's uh, leading to development of the intestinal function and actually some evidence that it may feed back actually to affect the rumen uh, by, by blood-borne hormonal changes rather than being there directly. Uh, the other aspect might relate to uh, uh, anti antibacterial or antibacteriostatic effect that, that butyrate to some degree, probably more so the, the other shorter 
medium chain fatty acids. So I, I think there's some potential of these different compounds to have um, an incremental effect in improving improving development and health in, in young calves. Okay. Um, I have one from, and I'm, I'm sorry in advance for mispronouncing your name, Sammy Alsadawe, and he says, we are using alfalfa in calves rations by 15%, and the starter is 18.5% crude protein, and weaning at 70 to 80 days of age, one, uh, 120 kilograms. We arrive at first breeding at 12 months and feeding milk and milk replacer and starter ad libitum. What is your recommendations? Uh, so I guess and, I'm, I'm um, clear. Okay, Dr. Drakeley, what I'll do is I'll, co I'll copy all this mm -hmm. down into the questions so that you can see it easier. Okay. So I, I guess wondering if um, if he's talking about a um, actually incorporating like ground alfalfa into the into the starter pellet, or if this is actual uh, like chops alfalfa in combination. But um, I, I think certainly the the growth rates there are are good. Um, the again the overall fermentability of the uh, of the starter is going to be important. So not knowing uh, exactly what what the rest of it looks like is a, a little bit of a problem. But um, you know unless there's specific challenges that he's seen there. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I could make any recommendation for improvement. I think that the, um, providing it in the ration um, is, is again getting providing a combination, and as long as the calves are not sorting that out one way or the other, then uh, it's, it's probably working okay. Um, that, that's a fair amount of additional fiber for the early um, the early life period when we're trying to get the, the rumen developed. Uh, again, even the good quality hay is not going to be uh, digested very well at all. So that would be my only comment that perhaps the total inclusion is still a little bit high. <clears throat> okay. Um, I, maybe he will type in some more clarifications. I have one more question that I'm going to ask from the English language. I do know there are more questions in mine, but I know Paula has some. So I'll ask this following question, and then I will get back to the others. Um, this is from Sylvia Baruki from BSC Animal Nutrition. Would you prefer 5% short hay in a calf starter or none at all if you had to make a decision? If yes, 5% on a dry matter basis? Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, I would say under most circumstances, yes. Um, I would certainly say that if it's a, a dry lot type of, of system where they, there's no straw bedding, then I, I think there's clear clear preference for the forage. Um, if I could have 5% forage along with the starter, uh, to me that's that's the best system. And, and under most circumstances, um, I, I think there would probably be a, be some benefits observed. Okay, thank you. Um, so Sammy had a clarification that the alfalfa is mixed with the starter. Okay. 
All right. And now I'm going to let Paula ask some questions, and, and I'll probably circle around back to Marcos before I open or go back to some more okay, English language just, questions. Yeah. Can I just add, I forgot the second part of his question was dry matter basis or as fed. I think actually uh, the hay and the starter are going to be essentially the same dry matter uh, content, so I'm not sure it makes a difference whether okay. it's as fed or, or dry matter. Um, under that temperature and humidity conditions, uh, what would be the increment uh, in nutrient requirements of maintenance for the calf? Requirements are not as are not defined as closely, perhaps yet for calves as are the, the cold stress increments. But in general, if the if the calf is in a, a hot and humid environment above its thermal neutral zone. There's, there's probably in the same range of about 25% increase in maintenance requirements. Um, so it would be nice to be able to feed more to the calf to allow for that, but unfortunately one of the responses to heat stress is that calves don't want to eat as much, and particularly uh, the dry feed consumption. So it's, uh, it's a situation where, where growth is going to be compromised relative to more comfortable conditions. Okay, I'll ask a second question from Paula so that she can freely translate. Um, what is your opinion regarding extruded high digestibility feed to enable weaning on day 30 without impacting average daily gain and improving post-weaning performance? Um, I, I haven't seen a lot of data on those. I've, I've, um, I'm aware of some of the, the development that's going on. Um, uh, you know, again, I think that's a, a strategy that if we, if it can be shown to work in terms of dry feed utilization and um, consumption utilization of the feed, that's great. Uh, but I, I still, you know, that's a separate issue to me away from the um, the idea of feeding more milk early to to result in a better animal. So the combination of both of those approaches, I think, has uh, has merit or certainly needs to be looked at, but um, I don't think that any any system like that um, extruded high digestibility feed is going to be able to replace milk uh, at a very early age. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there is a couple of questions about processing of concentrates for calves, like pelleting, fine grinding. What, what will what would be comments on that? In general, we would prefer a the, the calf would prefer a coarser grind to a fine grind because of the the dustiness and so on, or the um, the, the lower palatability once it's a, a fine, very fine meal or a dusty mix. Um, along with some, I, I'm aware of some work where they looked at a finely ground concentrate mixture and then with some uh, chopped, finely chopped hay mixed with that and actually had some pretty good results. So I think there's some things that can be looked at to manipulate that. But as part of a, uh, a, a complex starter mixture, I would say in general that a, a coarser grind is, is going to be preferable, more acceptable to the calf. Um, of course, we, we, we need a, a good quality pellet, some material that's going to hold the, the protein and the, the, the uh, minerals and vitamins together and uh, prevent it from being sorted out or, or lost in the, the fines of the... 
Can I go to another one? Yes, you can, Marcos. Okay. There's one here on the biology of the nuclear response to intensive phasing of dairy cats. What would be the mechanism or to what would explain that and if the response you could see in the second lactation also or if the response is only in the first lactation? Yeah. So I'll, I'll answer the second part of that first. The, the response is seen in continued uh, improvements in later lactations um, as, as uh, the data have become available to follow more of those heifers into the second and third lactation. Uh, you don't lose that response. In fact, there's there's some additional um, uh, response being observed. The mechanism is is really not uh, understood yet. Um, some people would argue that it's a benefit in terms of uh, improved health early on, so that we're not perhaps having as many uh, subacute uh, respiratory infections or um, just a general improvement in health, but I, I really don't think that's the only answer. I think there's some kind of a programming effect happening. Um, people are, are, are looking at a, a couple of different avenues. One is the, um, the recruitment of a population of stem cells that seem to be present early, uh, in maybe in the first month or so after birth. Um, and then a second mechanism relates to possible changes in uh, like epigenetic effects where we're we're changing the expression of of genes later in the the in the program of development for milk production um, and so those are both areas that are are being actively looked at right now but uh, to my knowledge nobody has really put forward a you know a really clear hypothesis about what's happening other than those those two general types of responses I knew that we would have a lot of questions for you, Dr. Drakeley. Um, first, I have a comment from Diana Allen, and she just wants us to thank you for a wonderfully clear and informative presentation. There's so much information that she's sure she will listen again, but it is now quarter of one in the UK, and she needs <laughs> to go to bed so that she can yeah. she can get some work tomorrow. I know she just got from, got back from holiday, so she might be very tired. Well, thank um, you, thank you for the nice words. And then we have from Donna Wirtz again. Can you explain testing of blood um, Ig and could should we do this immunoglobulin? Sorry, and should we do this more regularly on the farm and perhaps group calves accordingly? Yeah, interesting question. I, I think the um, <clears throat> for troubleshooting situations, we we would certainly recommend uh, looking at. IgG content, perhaps. Um, more commonly, it's we're, lo we're looking at uh, blood total protein, and of course, being able to do that quite conveniently on farm with a, a refractometer, or just grabbing a sample and doing a, a, a quick total protein um, assay. So that that usually is a good enough uh, surrogate measurement for I the IgGs themselves. Uh, and those are, are relatively simple to do on farm. Now I forgot the second part of the question. Um, let me see. I can scroll back to that. Should we, let's see, and perhaps group calves accordingly? Ah, yes, that was, that was the interesting addition there. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's something that um, is very interesting in terms of managing because um, we know, for example, that the, the calves probably will be growing 
differently if they if they have a bad start with low classroom intake, and so perhaps the nutrition programs could be tailored better to those uh, groups of calves. Um, to my knowledge, nobody's really looked at that from a, a research standpoint, but it's a, an interesting idea. Perhaps some additional um, supplements that might be helpful for uh, classroom-deprived calves could be used in those situations um, and not, not used for all calves. So that is, it's a very interesting question. Um, let's see, I have a, a question from Bill Tapp. Or top, I'm sorry. Acidified milk feeding programs were quite popular a while back, but I don't hear much about them now. What are your comments, and could we or should we be acidifying the free choice water supplied to cats? Yeah, the, the acidified milk programs, um, it's actually the second time in my lifetime that I've seen them come around and disappear. So uh, I think they're, they're, they were a... Um, it was a, a relatively easy way, effective way to achieve larger milk intakes um, and worked in group-fed calf situations. So that's the attraction. I think the, um, the, the couple of the reasons why they may have faded a, a bit again, uh, one is just how you wean those calves. Um, and so if you have calves of, of different ages within a group, it's very difficult to to perform the weaning then of all the calves at the same time without limiting some. Uh, so the just the, the practices associated with weaning, uh, it's a difficult difficult system to work with that way. Uh, the other issue is just having to work with uh, work with the acids on farm. Uh, the Canadian work in in Ontario and so on was largely using formic acid, which we can't use in the U.S. Uh, it's it's kind of a nasty acid, as as a lot of them are, and and uh, just concerns with with handling that and and so on. Um, so I think probably the the area from the calf standpoint that that maybe is um, people were seeing slumping calves around weaning with those programs, and uh, that that maybe is was discouraging a lot of the excitement. Um, so as far as acidification of water, acidification in general, the, the data that would show that, that acidification really can be effective in gut health and nutrient use and so on is, is pretty weak in my opinion. And I, I, I'm not sure if, there's, if that's the angle that he was asking about or whether it's uh, uh, some, other, some other angle on the water. But I, I would be hesitant about trying to acidify water because um, in general, one of the, the effects that the acidified milk programs used acid for was to limit the meal size. Um, and so that would say to me that the acid water might also be a way to limit water intake, which is certainly not what we want to be doing. So unless I'm missing an angle of his question, I, I, I'm not uh, – I don't see a yeah he he may type in more to clarify he did agree with your comments on um the milk replacer or the acidified milk replacer mm -hmm. um I have a question with from Paula, and I'm assuming that it's just working better for Paula to have me ask them um how would you manage the fast growth program liters of milk per week and at what um and I think that's at week in age. And at what age and days would you wean the 
I think the programs that have started off calves at um, a few days at four to five liters of milk and then fairly quickly gone to maybe six liters a day uh, for another week um, by by two to three weeks of age, having them up to eight liters or so or even higher in, in some um, some circumstances uh, for some period of time. And then if they're able to step step down that program over a couple of weeks, I think it's still um, still feasible to be weaning at uh, seven to eight weeks if, if you have that system working where the calves are are starting to pick up um, pick up um, starter intake quickly. So I don't think we have to be looking at, at really extensive feeding periods, but um, you know that that's that that is always easier if you can extend the feeding period a bit. Um, Marcos, do you have questions? Yeah, I have a couple here. Uh, other ones about colostrum, about volumes, if there is anything new or like we are proposing more milk for calves and how how is the story about colostrum feed? Yeah, yeah I, I don't think there's anything tremendously new about the, the recommendations for colostrum intake other than everything we're finding um, that, that's newer or specifically related to how to help calves use more milk would emphasize the importance of getting adequate colostrum in. Um, so I think the the recommendation to try to uh, to get four liters a day or four liters into the calf at birth followed by an additional couple of liters or as much as the calf will drink then uh, later that in the first day um, still are the, the most likely to lead to consistent success. I think the, um, the other aspect is that we always emphasize or that I always emphasize is quickly and you know if we could get farms to to get classroom in sooner and I know it's difficult with larger uh, three times a day operations in some case but uh, the sooner we can get the classroom in I think it lessens the importance of the the, um, the quality aspect uh, and and uh, is is just uh, that much more effective in achieving adequate immune protection uh, I, a couple of recent farm meetings that I did, there were there were um, a couple of farmers there that were getting classroom into the calves on a fairly large farm within one hour uh, regularly. Uh, at least that was his story. But um, so I, you know, I think those those benefits are equally as important as trying to to push the large volumes of classroom at once. So I, I think those are the issues. Just you know, not not. Uh, not limiting colostrum intake in the, the first provision and then, you know, as much as they can get into a, uh, the calf at the second feeding of the, of the first day. So I was asking about use of corn silage for calves. Mm -hmm. When would you start and if there is a big difference from hay or something yeah. like that? Yeah. yeah. So the, the use of corn silage traditionally has been kind of discouraged in young calves up until maybe six months of age or something like that. Uh, but we, we see a lot of farms that are, are putting calves uh, almost from the after the first post-weaning group uh, onto some sort of a TMR where corn silage would be a, a, a large component of that. Um, I think the concerns about corn silage have been um, 
one that the the acid load that would come with the silage is counterproductive to what we're trying to do to the rumen and the, the young stage so that there's there's too much um, additional acid coming in we're trying to raise the, the pH of the, the young rumen and that might be counterproductive uh, some people would argue that that though the moisture or perhaps the acidity or um, possible um, other fermentation products might limit intake. Um, I don't know if that's really true or not. And then the other concern that I've always had is just the management of it, particularly for the young calves. That you know, if we don't, if we're not cleaning that out on a daily basis, um, we can get some nasty feed in there pretty quickly that calves are not going to want to consume, or that may contain uh, moles and so on that that uh, we don't want them to consume. So. I think with those things in mind, a lot of people have made it work in, say, the, the third month, third to fourth month of life as part of a, uh, a TMR. The work that I referenced from Spain, they had that, uh, corn silage was one of the options, and the calves seemed to eat about as much of that on a dry matter basis as they did with the other forages. So to me, it, it kind of comes down to a, a management aspect a limited, a very limited amount if we're feeding it to, to young calves, and then management to keep it uh, keep it clean and fresh. And water temperature is an issue on calf feeding. I can we manipulate anything by working on that? Uh, is that water the temperature of the supplemental water, or is yeah, that used? Yeah, the, the water that the calves drinking. Yeah. Can we? Yeah. Manipulate the rooming or have more fluids in the rooming fluid or mm -hmm. just by changing it? I think, not sure that we can go to that extent, but certainly uh, a warm water in, in a cold environment um, is beneficial to starter intake. It seems to be beneficial, and it also lessens any um, uh, additional cold load on the calf during a, living in a cold environment. Likewise, in the in the hot climates, uh, cool water is probably uh, the, the calves will probably do better on the, the cool water in terms of uh, promoting dry feed intake and helping them to, to maintain body temperature and so on. I'm not sure that we can. Um, at least I'm not aware of data that would show that we could manipulate other factors of rumen fluid composition or, or response of the calf. So coming back to Bill Top's question about the acidified milk replacer, he said your answer was exactly what he wanted and anticipated regarding the water and the milk, um, acidified milk. And he said, thank you. It's a great presentation. He enjoyed it thoroughly. Oh, thank um, you. <clears throat> I have a question from, and I'm going to kill this name, Zhang Fei Zhang. What is your recommendation about avoiding weanling stress of calves? Yeah, that's a that's a very important issue. Um, that that's certainly no one easy answer to that. I think the one aspect of that is trying to separate out the different stressors that the calves have to face. So my comments about not combining a lot of changes at one time. So that if their calves are housed in hutches, for example, that we don't move them out of the hutch the same day that we stop milk feeding, uh, give them a, some period of time in their new environment to adjust to the feeding changes before they have to deal with other social or environmental changes. Um, that's that's a, 
the big factor management-wise. Um, I think the gradual reduction of milk volume is another way to, to minimize some of the nutritional stress. Uh, some people have had good success with continuing some warm water feeding for uh, three days or so after they, they stop milk feeding or stop putting milk replacer powder into the water. So if, the, if somebody shows up with the same amount of, of warm water and the same feeding device at the same time of day, uh, that kind of separates the, the weaning, the, uh, excuse me, the nutritional component of weaning from the, some of the behavioral uh, effects. So there's a variety of, of things like that. Again, trying to, to prevent the calf from losing a lot of intake but also not facing a lot of, of behavioral uh, stress at the same time. Let's see. I have a question from Paula. What do you think about using TMR with heifer calves? And I'm not sure what age she's thinking of. Mm -hmm. You said PMR or TMR? TMR. So partial yeah. partial mixed ration? Um, no, total mixed ration. Total mixed ration. Okay. Yeah, yeah so the, uh, again, one simple system for um, a lot of farmers has been to, uh, for that, the, the next group out of the immediate transition group from weaning, to introduce um, some some fiber like we want to do, but to have that as, as a TMR. So it's worked very well on many farms to just use some of the, the lactating cow TMR. I think the key there is to minimize it, and so uh, we're still ensuring enough of the starter or, or grower grain consumption. So typically it would be maybe one part of the TMR to four or five parts of the uh, of the, the grower starter concentrate in order to in order to ensure enough of the uh, concentrate intake. But I think those systems can work very well. Uh, we just have to ensure that the uh, the, the total grain and protein intake is adequate for the calves because they're still not going to be able to use large amounts of fiber very efficiently. Okay, thank you. I have another question from Sammy Isadawe. What about using chelated minerals and ionophore in calves in calf feeding? Mm -hmm. Now, so the ionophores um, certainly have some benefit in terms of both growth promotion but also um, in in control of coccidiosis. Um, the chelated minerals or um, organic sources, we've done a little bit of work with a, a couple of of non um, <laughs> of organic or or um, non-inorganic, I guess would be the best way to say that. And it appears that at the higher growth rates uh, perhaps the additional benefit of the um, of the, the non-inorganic forms of trace minerals can be beneficial. And did I forget part of that? Ionophores and chelated uh, minerals. Let me see. Um, chelated minerals and ionophores in calf feeding. Okay. So I don't no. think so. I think I got it. Very good. Um, let me see if Marcos has any more questions. Marcos, do you have any questions? Okay. Yeah, I do. Uh, about the use of mucuride protein, like whey protein concentrate for calves, if it would be an advantage? Uh, could you say that again? I'm sorry, Miss Part. The of use it. of whey, whey protein, milk derived protein, for yes. in the concentrate for calves, not in the milk replacer. 
Uh, okay, so just using that as uh, a protein source. As a protein, protein source. source. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of um, larger calf ranches and so on that would be kind of making their own milk formula using uh, using whey powder uh, or whey protein concentrate, uh, and along with some uh, a source of fat and and um, other supplementation. So uh, it, it's possible um, you lose some of the benefits of a complete milk replacer in terms of. Um, well, certainly convenience, but in terms of uh, the, the preparation that may improve total utilization of those those ingredients, particularly if you're adding it with a with a fat source. But it, it's another one is very general about the use of essential oils for cans, mm -hmm. like essential oils and a big group of yeah. additives. But yeah, and can you comment? Yeah, so the, the essential oil compounds are uh, have been of a lot of interest for um, for antimicrobial effects, perhaps as well as um, maybe improving feed intake and utilization. Um, there's some data available in calves. I would say that they're not overwhelmingly strong at this point, but I, I think the the concept of uh, natural Occurring compounds being able to replace the need for antibiotics is, is still certainly a, an area of a lot of interest and importance. And there's there's suggestion from other species that you know maybe there is something to those compounds. So uh, I think there's there's probably um, there may be a role for them. I think we still need to have a a little bit better data in, in calves. With very high quality silage, nutrient levels, energy, and crude protein are not enough to meet the requirement of young animals. Would the effect with ad, <clears throat> excuse me, would the effect with ad libitum hay be similar or worse, or the same? Um, yeah, Even it's with probably, high quality, yeah, yeah, <laughs> probably probably about the same. Uh, the issue is none of the forages. Um, have the high enough energy and, and other nutrient um, available to the calf to support high rates of gain, and so that's why we have to uh, have to be using more concentrate supplementation early in age. So I think that uh, certainly the composition is different with um, with corn silage or with hay grass silage, but if you if you think about the Kind of the upper limit of digestibility in the young calf that none of them will have enough nutrition. So I think that's all part of the general problem. Um, Dr. Drakeley, you've done a, a fantastic job fielding so many questions. I I'm, was super excited when we got a chance to have you talk. Um, Paula has her question now. At what age do you suggest starting cattle on silage, corn, or alfalfa for rebreeding? I'm not sure I understand that part of the question, but uh, in general, you know, we would we would say silages probably, and um, certainly not free choice silages until um, probably six or or eight months of age. But uh, smaller amounts, as we've talked about, could go in um, probably as young as three or four months. Okay, I think I think raising is rebreeding. I'm not entirely okay. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I have a question from Bill Top. 
what will be the correlation between early calfhood nutrition and longevity of the cows that were raised that way? Um, well, that's a, a good question. I don't think we can answer necessarily with, with data other than people that have been doing it in the, the field for many years. I think that, um, you know, raising a, an animal that is um, perhaps healthier early in life and more productive uh, is, is going to enhance the chance for survivability. Um, you know, there, obviously there's things that enter into uh, uh, leaving productive, leaving the productive herd that are somewhat independent of, of that plane of nutrition. But we did a little part of the, one of the studies we did a few years ago was looking at hoof development in the, the young calf. And uh, we, we saw no abnormalities there, but we haven't published that yet, uh, like too many things. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's, there's certainly no reason to believe that uh, if we're, we're growing young animals more rapidly that we're going to have a decrease in productive life. And I would, I would predict that it, would, that it should be favorable uh, in the long term. What? Is the best fat, um, <clears throat> excuse me, what is the fat source of milk replacer and the suitable level of protein from plant source in milk replacers? And this is from Kuifeng Ni. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the United States, most of the milk replacers would be using um, a good grade tallow, um, lard, and perhaps a bit of coconut oil, um, typically in a, uh, like a, a 40, 40, 40, 20, or 45, 45, 10 ratio or something like that. So it's, it's usually a blend of, of, of tallow and lard and, and some coconut oil. Um, that will vary in, in different parts of the world, obviously, because where, wherever animal fats are prohibited by the BSE concerns, then, then it uh, has to be some sort of a vegetable fat, which creates its own difficulties. Um, the uh, protein provision from plant proteins, uh, the major plant protein sources that are available and have been thoroughly tested would be uh, various soy protein um, preparations, uh, wheat protein. Some areas of the world you'll see some other um, minor legume sources, but uh, for the uh, potato, for example. But for the most part, wheat and soy are the major things that, that we'll see. Um, and the better preparations calves do uh, do okay, but it's still quite difficult to find anything that will will not cause some loss of performance in the first two to three weeks of life, um, particularly if we get above um, certainly above 50% protein replacement from the uh, from the, the vegetable protein sources. I think the effects are uh, there's there's some again some a few. Um, preliminary studies that have looked at replacing with with more vegetable protein in, at high feeding rates, and I think that that's an area that we really need to look at because providing just providing more nutrition to cover some of the uh, perhaps the negative effects of the vegetable proteins um, may overcome some of those problems. The other factor is also the trying to make sure that the, the key essential amino acids are balanced across those different sources. Okay. Um, I'm waiting on a question for Paula, but I have one. I'm curious about your 
information on some of the milk replacers that are sort of tailored either to specific times of the year or specific breeds even, mm-hmm. um, what, how, or, or some of the higher fat, higher protein milk replacers. Yeah. How do you feel about those? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so there's a, a several answers to that depending on which part of it. I think the, um, the products that are formulated for winter and summer are, are interesting because of the probably some benefit of providing more fat in the winter. Even with the calves that are growing very rapidly, they, they could use some additional fat deposition as a, a way to help in those cold weather situations. Uh, the lower fat in summer is probably beneficial for helping to promote uh, starter intake in those times. Uh, the breed things, certainly the, the Jersey formula, um, I think has been quite successful. Uh, it's difficult. Uh, a Jersey is not just a small Holstein, and so it's very challenging to, to keep them thriving, particularly in any kind of a, a cold weather situation. Uh, they really do seem to do better with the, the higher protein and higher fat formulation than the uh, than the, the Holstein or other large breeds. Uh, the very high protein and high fat, you know, would be more like a milk solids kind of a, a replacement. I think that's an area that, um, from a literature standpoint, it's not very well documented what what might be possible with that. But um, yeah, there's there's certainly some interesting things going on in the field. Thank you. Um, I have a question from Paula. Until what age do heifers still have the esophageal, esophageal groove reflex? Yeah, it's very very interesting that you can maintain that uh, as long as you keep feeding um, feeding liquid by the same technique as uh, as you do as a as, as a young calf. And actually, there there have been people that have retrained um, functioning ruminants, older animals, to have that reflex by Again, bottle feeding water or something at that that time period. So it's it's something that I think is maybe always there if if the proper stimuli stimuli are provided. Um, so calves um, calves lose it because they they're not using it anymore, and the water is going to everything's going to go into the rumen. But uh, you can't maintain it, and in some cases, people have been able to to reintroduce it. Okay, thank you, Dr. Bucky. I was translating. It, is, it has been a, a very stressful webinar, but thank you. You you did a great job. I I liked it, and I hope uh, our assistants uh, enjoyed it as long as they could. But <laughs> I, I think that they will enjoy it later. Very good. Yeah, thank you I, very much. I, I will agree with Paula. I never quite get enough out of the webinars until I listen to them the second time. Um, Marcos, thank you for the work you did for Marcelo. I understand you're going to continue on and and um, discuss the whole webinar with the Brazilian audience. Thank you for inviting me. My first time as a moderator here. And thanks, Dr. Drakeley, also for the sharing of knowledge and all the information and was really great. Number of questions was had we had a lot of questions here, and I think people enjoyed it a lot. Thanks again. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you, <clears throat> and and I want to thank you, Dr. Drakeley. It was great to listen to you, and thank you for 
everything you did. So I'm going to close out the webinar. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. I know we had some people that probably were up in the middle of the night or very, very early in the morning, and I'm always impressed that they try to make the live presentation. Um, so um, Sylvia says thank you very much. So thanks, right. Dr. Drakeley. Have a good evening. Um, go home and have some dinner. You've, you've earned it. Yeah, thanks very much, everybody. Thank you. My, my Bye. pleasure. Bye-bye. Yep.